will continue books in fantasy and adventure, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This is your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the historical fantasy Falcon series and Girl of Fire, the first in a YA fantasy series. My June interview is with Kathleen Jennings, the author of the horror-tinged fantasy novella Flyaway. Here's my review of Flyaway. A rich and simmering stew of vivid images, psychological tension, and dashes of horror conspire to create an original and startling tale. The convoluted and intertwining stories of several families will demand your full attention as they spiral together closer and closer to the resolution. Our unreliable narrator lives cloistered in a house with her adoring mother in a small town in the wilds of the Australian outlook. Tina, also called Tink, seems to have a calm and settled home life now that the wild males in the family vanished. As the story evolves, we also learn that she calls her former best friends by their last names and generally sounds oddly stilted as if she lived in the 50s instead of present times. She seems unaware of pertinent facts, such as the possible murder of her father. We're kept guessing as to what suppressed memory has damaged Tina, and why her siblings and father, as well as other residents, have disappeared. Dark secrets lurk at the edge of the narrative, to be inferred by Tina's blind spots. The history of three small towns, deep in the Australian outback, suggests that the wilderness of the land is inextricably woven into the lives of those who live there. In the midst of so much space, ironically, there is almost no escaping your family's fate. Now a little bit about Kathleen. Kathleen Jennings is an illustrator and writer in Brisbane, Australia. Her clients include Simon & Schuster, Little Brown, Candlewick Press, Tor.com, Small Beer Press, Subterranean Press, Tartarus, Ticonderoga Publications, Fable Croft Press, and Twelve Planet Press. She is a Hugo Award finalist and has been shortlisted three times for the World Fantasy Award. That's information from her website, which is www.kathleenjennings.com. Her last name is spelled with two N's. Many of her illustrations and incidental drawings appear on her blog. That's tanoutlewordpress.com. And she tweets at Tanoutl. I'll spell that for you. It's T-A-N-A-U-D-E-L. So that's her WordPress and her Twitter handle. I asked her for an interesting fact about herself that wasn't on her website. And Kathleen admits that she was accidentally a lawyer for a few years. So in just a minute, I'm going to welcome Kathleen on the show, and we're going to start off with her reading a selection from her book. I've got Kathleen Jennings from Australia on the show today. Hello, thanks very much for having me. (laughs) You're welcome. And Kathleen, you said you were going to do a reading from Flyaway? Yes, that's correct. Well, let's start. I'll 
The reading I'm going to do is from quite close to the beginning of the book, and it's describing the countryside that it takes place in. Great. That triangle, that triangle tangle of roads and tracks held the district of Inglewell. Hills and scrub glittered in the powder white light, fading to chalk blue. Sharp grasses fluttered pale in the paddocks, green and burgundy on the verge. Grey huts subsided into themselves like memory. Then, the plunge into purple shadows, the troll rattle of an old timber bridge, a secret of dim emerald and the barrier shriek of cicadas, and up again, sky tumbled, grass fogged. It was a fragile beauty, too easy to bleach with dust and history, to dehydrate with heat, bleed with the retort of a shotgun or the strike of a bull bar, to blind with sun on metal. Easy, too, to turn from it, disgusted and afraid. But if you got out of a car to stretch your legs and instead were still, if you crouched down and waited, it would find you, nosing among the grass like the breeze. The light and loveliness would get into your bones, into your veins. It would beat in your blood like drumming under the ground. Memory bled and frayed there where ghosts stood silent by fence posts. There the bone horse kept pace with night drivers while high branches shifted continuously even on breathless days and creaked with the passage of magarities or other creatures unseen and at midday long shadows whispered under the trees. And what trees? Bottle and box, paper and iron, formed and blossomed under the unutterable light, the sky blew as breath as enamel or beaten like copper, everything beneath it turned to metal or else translucent. Trees like lanterns, like candles, ghosts and bones. The fibrous skeletons of moth-flame cactus and beetle-eaten lantern bush leaned over the opal-veined bulk of petrified limbs filled in empty creek beds. Trees bled rosin like rubies, sprouted goitrous nests, suspended cats' cradles of spiderwebs, spinning discs of silk. Trees stood hard as bronze in still sunlight and stirred like a living hide in the rolling advent of a storm. That's lovely. I'm a writer myself, but my Thank sentences you. are pretty simple. <laughs> How long does it take to craft a few paragraphs like that, of that quality? Well, thank you very much. On their own, I think, I, if you ask me to sit down and write some pretty paragraphs, I could probably do it, largely because I have a lot of practice in playing with imagery and words. I love stories that do stuff quickly, so I'd never disparage short sentences, but I enjoy writing poetic ones. But to make them all fit into a larger work, it's the editing that takes a lot of time, because mm -hmm. when I draft a book I tend, or a story, I, I tend to put all the adjectives in that I can think of, because <laughs> then when I go back to edit it, I just have to cut out the ones that don't belong. So when you're editing something large like that and when there's poetic structures in there, words that echo and play with each other, every time I change a word, I have to go back and say, did I use bronze anywhere else in this paragraph? Okay, what other metals did I refer to? Do I have any other words that began with B? So the editing is quite intricate. Oh, I see. That's so interesting. And I, my process is the other way. I kind of write a bare bones, skimming along on the plot, what happened next, what happened next. And then I have to go back and fatten it all up and add images and sensory input and how people feel. <laughs> so it's actually the opposite <laughs> of yours. 
<laughs> Not quite the opposite. I always have to go back in and add human emotion in the last draft. Oh, I have to do that too. My readers are always on me like, <laughs> well, it's not quite clear how she feels. And I'm thinking, but it's obvious how she feels. This is a terrible day in her life. <laughs> so I'm with you on yeah. that one. So let's talk about Flyway. Um, it gets underway with Tina's decision to search for her brothers, along with the help of her former friends, Gary Damson and Trish Aberdeen. During the course of the story, we learned that the Aberdeens and the Damsons have their own complicated history, just like Tina's family, the Scots. Could you give us a brief introduction to each of the families? I'd love to. Well, one of the questions that underlies the book is how much families actually tell their members about what their history is. So I'll give you a brief introduction to what the families think they are and what they might be. Because Tina's family, the Scots, Tina thinks that they're just regular members of the town. And in the case of her and her mother, very correct, very proper. They do things the right way. But as the book goes on, she starts to realize that her brothers were seen as wild and her father had an unexpected reputation in some parts of the town and wasn't from around there and might have caused some of the problems that underlie the town. And that one of the reasons their family holds themselves aloof is that they are more outsiders than people who belong. But then you've got uh, Trish Aberdeen and Trish's family has quite a complicated background, which I don't go into in detail, but some of her family knows where they come from and who they are and the land they belong to very well. But her mother's story and her mother's family's history is really mixed up. It could be any number of things. It could be a full-on fairy tale. It could just be people who didn't keep track of where their families came from. And then you've got the Dansons, on the other hand, who are a family of fences. They're blue-collar workers. They run a business building fences around the place, which is very important in a rural area. And they see themselves as essentially marking the boundaries, keeping things where they should be, both literally and metaphorically. But as the story goes on, even Gary has to start asking how much that's true. His family have married into some of the more intensely problematic families in the area. And also there are things that were never designed to be fenced in. So that's the family. <laughs> I like your final statement, things that were never designed to be <laughs> fenced in. So let's get deeper into the habits and outlooks of the various families. There's Tina's mother, Mrs. Scott. She's obsessed with etiquette books. She seems intent, this is back on the subject of fencing in, She's intent on creating an artificial world for herself and Tina, a world which keeps out the wildness of the outback and replaces it with cultivation, both symbolic through the cultivation of manners and literal through the cultivation of flowers. How do I make her sound like a great gal? Tell us a little more about her. <laughs> well, I think she thinks she's a great gal. <laughs> But yes, that's quite correct. I'm really enjoying these questions, by the way, because it's lovely after spending so long working on a book to 
see what worked for readers and what readers and reviewers take from it. So what you've said is both really interesting and quite exciting. And I wanted to create with Mrs. Scott the sense of someone who has a very orderly view of the world. And from the outside, and even from up close, that can look like a really good thing. And I have to confess here, I had a really happy childhood, and I love both my parents. But something I did do in this book was take a few things that they do and work out how to make that really unsettling. And my mother, or my father, <laughs> was a little rough around the edges at times. <laughs> he had been an army officer. He was a farmer. And my mother spent a lot of time running after him going, Mark, don't tell the girls how to sing that marching song. I'm trying to raise ladies. <laughs> so it was that idea of someone trying to raise ladies in a landscape where ladies, as a concept, never really belonged that I wanted to capture with Mrs. Scott and make into a whole character. She's, yes, she's creating an artificial world for herself, but to an extent, so many people in that town and in that area are, they're predominantly going to be at most fourth or fifth generation that -hmm. they've lived in the area. They've come from other countries, they've come from other cultures, and a lot of the plants in their gardens, the idea of etiquette comes from another world, and it doesn't really belong. It's not native to the land that it's growing in, the way the plants that they're trying to keep out of the gardens are. So that's what I wanted to do with Narada. She's a very, Mrs. Scott, she's a very flower-like person. She's delicate. She's beautiful. She smells nice. (laughs) But she's living in a world which wasn't really designed for her. Mm -hmm. And then we've got Gary Damson. You mentioned before uh, he belongs to a family of fence makers that make boundaries, and they like to keep things neat and tidy. Does that mean ignoring or turning away from certain things? And if so, how does their way of keeping out the wildness and strangeness of the outback differ from that of Nerida Scott? So, yes, growing up, as I did in Western Queensland, you really appreciate the value of a good fence. Uh, It's not unique to there, of course. It's the Robert Frost line, good fences make good neighbors. Mm -hmm. And when I was growing up, there was a book by Frank Dolby Davidson I remember reading, which was about uh, a cow, which which <laughs> are an introduced species in Australia, running, which had sort of gone feral and was running wild, but it was at the time that more and more fences were being built. And it was this sense of things, things that had gone wild and run wild, but weren't, again, really there's not many places in the area where cows just run wild as a matter of fact, and they're quite destructive in Australia. The sense of something that was there through no fault of its own getting elbowed out of the world. Mm-hmm. So even though I admire fencing and think it's really important, it does have that question that it always raises. What are you fencing in? What are you fencing out? And is the world meant to be uh, uh, Judith Wright palm? Is the world ruled out in squares of black and white? So the Damsons see themselves as doing a necessary job, both in the usual sort of fencing, but again, in the more metaphorical way of just making sure people stay where they should be, that people who are getting a little bit too creative with what nature can do, who are perhaps dabbling in arts 
which are not entirely natural, <laughs> don't do that. And that's introduced species of animals or otherwise <laughs> mythic introduced species are kept in place, kept down. In Australia, of course, there's rabbit-proof fence and the dingo fences, which were made in an effort to keep back, respectively, the plague of introduced rabbits and then the native dingoes, which were eating sheep and so forth. And they have a lot of really important and problematic <laughs> cultural and historical associations in Australia. So fencing, and yet at the same time, it's such an obvious, frank, physical, honest job that, again, I wanted to play that with the dancers because their idea of what's neatness and what's wild is very different from the Scots, which I wanted to, sh wanted to show when um, Bettina first goes to Gary's place is that the front yard is a mess. But her front yard is very tidy. <laughs> Bears has kids' toys and fencing equipment, mold cars all over the place. So they have a very different idea of what tidy is. Yes, and actually, even though Gary comes from that family, he somehow seems warmer and more approachable than Nerida Scott as well. I hope so. I really quite like his character. He's not based, but there's a few boys I grew up around and got to know later, a certain type of Australian guy who always has a wonderful turn of phrase and it's very practical. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to capture a bit of that affection with Gary. I liked him too. And then I actually like Trish as well. She's the daughter of the deputy. And perhaps in some ways, she's the most grounded of the three friends. She's also the only one to have left their town. How does she feel about all the unexplained events and disappearances back home? Trish is a very angry girl, and I love her as a character, and I loved writing her for that reason. Sometimes when you write a character, you have to steer them or encourage them along or work out what they do. Mm -hmm. but the answer with Trish is always, she'd probably bite back. <laughs> <laughs> and that made her both a lot of fun to write, but Again, she reminded me, or I was writing her because I wanted to capture a lot of the girls I knew who are justifiably very angry about a lot of things in the world. Uh, both girls now who are out protesting and girls at college who are just fighting against their upbringing and teenagers everywhere who get dragged away from their friends, even if it's just for the holidays. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that sense of She's at uni, but she's not entirely independent yet. So she's still fighting to be her own person. But she doesn't have the full backstory of her family, particularly her mother, which means that she, she can't fully get her feet under her with her family history. She's also been given quite a hard time, I suspect, by friends and otherwise. And she's, she's just pushing back against the world hoping it will give and she'll find somewhere firm to stand or to make a difference. But at the same time, when you said she is the most grounded of the three friends, in some ways she is too grounded. She's turned her back, not turned her back, but she's refusing to be led astray by myths and legends and things that she grew up around, which are in fact incredibly integral to her background and to her mother's story, but which she's not paying attention to. And a lot of her story is about being forced to turn and confront those 
based on right. She's what's grounded to her family and what's happened to her friends. She's grounded herself, but at a certain cost of ignoring some very important information. Yes. So uh, birds and flowers are a recurring motif in your novel. You write vividly of geraniums hot as matches, the spice of pepperina, oleander's poison-sapped glow, the hallowed death of angels' trumpets as apricot at sunset. All that's missing are butterflies. Now, generally, flowers and birds add a feminine, decorative, and pleasant aspect to books. Do you think that's the case in your novel? Short answer, I hope not. Long answer, <laughs> I think I think they're beautiful. And a lot, like, in the, especially the poisonous ones, are beautiful. But there's a real difference between prettiness and decorativeness and beauty, which can mm-hmm. often be incredibly dangerous. And that was something I wanted to explore in this book. I was actually writing it while I was doing an um, MPhil, which for those who live in countries where that's not a thing, it's like a half-size PhD. And I was researching the visual evocation of the beautiful sublime in Australian Gothic literature. Oh. Because of a lot of Australian Gothic literature... <laughs> A lot of Australian Gothic literature is really grim, justifiably. Horrible things have happened, but it's grim and it's gritty and it's, there's an ugliness to the way the landscape is viewed as well as, well as the events. Whereas where I grew up, I was I learned to see, largely through reading a lot of fairy tales at the same time, I think, I learned to see the world I lived in as very beautiful, full of death and full of danger and full of terrible historical events, massacres and everything else, but visually beautiful. And the other thing about living in Australia, especially in Western Queensland, but then moving to a more coastal, subtropical area where I am now, is the awareness of flowers constantly and not beautiful spring flowers, you know, daffodils dancing under the clouds, but just a almost oppressive weight all year round. It's winter now, almost winter. No, it is winter now. <laughs> and you've just got these magenta and fuchsia weights of bougainvillea flowers everywhere. But it's, it's constant all year round. And it can become a little oppressive. And out west, again, there's a, there's a hardiness to a lot of the flowers that grow well there. And a hardness sometimes to a lot of the women who cultivate them. There's a reference at one point early in the story, I think, to roses grown on the corpses of roadside kangaroos. And in fact, the elder at our local Presbyterian church where I grew up, his wife used to she'd be driving the truck down the road. And if she saw a roadkill beside the road, she'd stop and shovel it up and mm. then take it and put it in her garden, which was mm. a gorgeous garden. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to, again, deal with that, bring it into beauty, keep it beautiful while still letting it be dangerous. A little bit like with Trish, in that case, not dealing with the beauty so much, although I like her a lot as a character, but the idea of a girl who's just very angry, possibly for good reason, and it's okay that she is, and perhaps useful at some point that she is, to do the same with the physical beauty. Well, uh, coming back to something you said earlier when you were answering the question, you had done some work on reading Australian Gothic novels. 
I really enjoyed your book, and I wonder if you would like to recommend any books quickly for our listeners who are interested in Australian Gothic, other than your own book, of course. Certainly. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly. There is a lot of lovely stuff out there, short stories, long work. Uh, Angela Slater, who's an author I work with, plays a lot in that area. But my fave, well, the ones that I looked at heavily for the research that I did were, of course, Picnic at Hanging Rock, which is a classic. And it's a very, very beautiful book and a very short book. And if you've seen the movie or the TV series, they're lovely. Mm-hmm. The movie is certainly quite accurate to the book, but there's a, a lightness and a freshness. So I'd really recommend reading Picnic at Hanging Rocks by Joan Lindsay that came out, I think, in, I want to say 1969, but I could be wrong about that. More recently, Rosalie Ham's novel, The Dressmaker, which was made into a movie with Kate Winslet a couple of years ago, is uh, this story about people returning home with fashion and style and an ability to cut dresses really well and using it to exact revenge on a small community. And it is texturally lovely. It's got gorgeous dresses. But also the work of Sean Tan. Most people know him as an illustrator, but he also has a couple books, he writes his own picture books, but he also has a couple books of extremely short, very heavily illustrated stories. One of them is called Tales from Outer Suburbia, and several of those are definitely Australian Gothic with the ghosts of pearl divers and the hints of things that exist between walls and immigrant communities. And they're really beautiful, unsettling, but really beautiful that's some recommendations. Thank you for sharing those. Uh, Getting back to your book, in the course of the story, several characters, I don't want to give away too much, but they are revealed (laughs) to have non-human origin. What does that mean for them in terms of living a human life? It's a very very good question. Something I find really interesting about dealing with that was working out characters who wanted to be seen as perfectly human and characters who were perfectly happy to be seen as unhuman and characters who are trying to strive towards what their origins were and become that instead and people who always thought they were human and are just trying to work out what that means if perhaps they weren't entirely so in some ways, I suppose it's a bit of a metaphor for, I want to say growing up, but only a few of the characters in the book are that sort of early adult age. It's, I think about finding your place in the world and working out what is right and how you define what right is and then what you're going to do about it, mm-hmm. that sense of whether you see yourself as a member of humanity or not, but also whether you rebel against the sometimes quite unnecessary requirements that civilization, quote unquote, puts on you. So mm-hmm. that certainly means a lot of different things to all of those characters. But yes, it was a lot of fun playing with it. <laughs> well, you've worked as an illustrator for many different publishing companies. Did that ease your entry as an author into the world of publication? It certainly eased it from the sense of 
understanding what I was getting myself into. I think uh, if I hadn't had any exposure to the publishing world, it's very opaque. Even yes. great publishing companies who are online a lot and who you see a lot, it's it's difficult to know what happens actually day by day inside any organization. So having that familiarity both with publishing as a whole and actually with the publisher that is bringing out Flyaway in America, which is Tor.com, I'd done a lot of illustrations for them. I'd met people there in that uh, capacity at a lot of conventions. So I already, I didn't have to sound out their personalities. I didn't have to work out what they were like to work with as people. I just had to work out what they were like to work with as an editor instead of as an art director. So it certainly helped it in that regard. And certainly in terms of getting my book in front of people, to be honest, I think it did help because I'd been out meeting people over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's the illustration as much as the fact that People knew my words because I write about the art that I do and people knew that I, you know, they, they knew who I was, they knew what I believed and they knew what I think is lovely imagery and I think that certainly helped me be able to put the book in front of people. I don't want to make it sound like that's the only way to do it or it's an unfair advantage because there are lots of ways just to be putting your work or your personality out in the world and being have, having that back and forth with people and even if even if you're talking to people online who aren't the publisher who eventually publishes you the networks are quite small people repost retweet talk about things i used to do little sketches of stories that other people were talking about and put them on twitter and there's just this these people out there who are really interesting to get to know and talk to and i think the more people you know in a field the easier the process of moving through that field becomes. Yeah, I think that's the bottom line. The more people you know, and uh, you seem enthusiastic about the other authors that you've encountered, so that's a good way to get connected for everyone who's listening. Uh, some honest enthusiasm. So uh, you are an artist, like we said, and the illustrations for Fly Away I wondered about those. Are those cut paper silhouettes? They definitely are cut paper silhouettes. Uh, I, I work with a, I work with silhouettes a lot. I really enjoy them. They've got a beautiful old fairy tale echo. Mm -hmm. uh, such a such a strong tradition of it in the fairy tale world, and yet the black and white imagery is so appropriate for a gothic situation that. I just felt that they really worked for what I was trying to do with the book, that mix of a hint of fairy tale beauty, but the weightiness of, of the Australian Gothic. Mm -hmm. The starkness of it. I've seen cut paper silhouettes yeah. over here as well. And I'm broadcasting from Switzerland and I'm thinking they may have their origins in folk art. Is that correct? I understand. So yes, I first, remember coming across them in some old art and craft books my mother had and mm -hmm. I think they were um, Pennsylvanian folk art books so I certainly remember doing you know, piercing paper with pins so that you could get candlelight through it and things like mm -hmm. that a lot of, well obviously I think that comes from Europe originally, a lot of European art cut paper in um, 
lots of lots of different traditions. Chinese, obviously. Uh, I know there's a lot of Jewish paper cutting traditions. There's I also another genre I love is Regency and that whole Jane Austen era of uh, stories. And there's a tradition of silhouette portraiture, of course, from that, especially the late 17, early 1800s, before photography was a thing, and up until photography was a thing people could afford, there were people who'd travel around and do cut paper portraits. And still sometimes at country shows, there'll be people who travel around and do that out mm. here. So it's it's got a very, I think, folk vernacular, folk origin, which goes really well with the folk tale story connections. Well, thanks so much for taking time out of your schedule to chat with us. What are you working on these days? Well, at the moment, so talking a little bit about the silhouettes, but about the whole range of my art, I'm also working on um, more of a mythic fiction fantasy Robin Hood-ish kind of novel. I started a PhD looking at jurisprudence in fantastic story worlds, which is basically the role of contracts in fairy tale novels. And I'm working on the art for a few books, including a new collection by Angela Slater called Tallow Wife and some original short stories by Juliette Morellier, which should be coming out, I hope, later this year. Well, so quite s- a few things. <laughs> yes, you sound very busy. Well, thanks for joining us today and have a great rest of the evening or night. Thank you very much. It was really lovely to talk to you. Thank you for having me on the show. Thanks for listening to me today on a New Books Network in Fantasy and Adventure channel. This June, I've been talking to Australian author Kathleen Jennings about her novel, Fly Away. Join me in July when I chat with author and park ranger Emily B. Martin about Sunshield, a feel-good fantasy novel about the challenges of friendships during politically stormy times. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the YA fantasy Girl of Fire, the first in the Bronas Quest series. You'll find the podcast schedule on my website, gabriellematthew.com. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more at Gabrielle Awesome. And since I have a somewhat unusual name, And if you're still with me, I'm going to spell it for you. It's G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E-M-A-T-H-I-E-U. So I hope you tune in in July.